it was uh, it was through listening to y'all that I I first heard about Ed Galloway's Totem Pole Park. Wow. And, uh, and the Dairy King in, in commerce as, as well. <laughs> Um, now they didn't. I, I didn't. I regretfully didn't have time to feature them, but you better believe I stopped by there for a soft serve and I talked to the family, and they're just great people. It's a special place. Broadcasting live from an airstream somewhere in Tornado Alley, bringing you the people, places, and stories from the Panhandle to the Red River. This is your only in Oklahoma show. And welcome to the show. Today we're talking about a new podcast that shines a unique light on some of the Oklahoma locations that you've grown to love. I'm Brett. And I am Harley. So probably you reminded me that we've, we've actually talked about this podcast three months ago. And I've just now gotten to where you I've connected said, the dots. That I've connected the dots with the Vanishing Postcards podcast. Yes. It is the most... For me, the most unique podcasting experience I've had in a great while. One of the things that I like about it, and we've got the interview coming up here shortly, but one of the things that I like about this show is it's an outsider perspective. Right. But somebody who really loves history. So it's it's a good mashup. And I think after our interview, we're going to drop uh, an entire episode of his show um, after our sh- after our interview is wrapped up, mm-hmm. so that you can get a kind of uh, get a taste of it, and if you like it, head on over to his show and subscribe. Absolutely, I I just found myself, you know, I started with uh, the Miami, Oklahoma episode, and right away I was hooked. What I like about it is it it has the sounds, it has the 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 people. You know, we talk about it, it, it's in our intro. You know, it's the people, the places, the stories. And if there was a really, if there was a, a podcast podcast next to us that really capitalizes on it, it would be Vanishing Postcards. But we're not going to. I don't want to spoil anything. I say we just jump into the interview. I agree, hundred percent. Joining us today is a Texas native living in New York City, talking about Route sixty six, an award winning podcaster, an award winning podcaster that may or may not have been inspired by us. Hey, Evan, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. I got to start off though. I'm, I've been going. I'm I'm cramming. Was cramming for an exam for over the last couple of weeks, and now I'm hooked. Where's my new episode? It's coming out. It, it, next episode is coming out uh, tomorrow. At, well, actually, see, I I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but uh, I release. I, I try to release every two weeks on Thursdays. And uh, the next episode that I have uh, coming out um, is on the Threat Filling Station, um, which is an incredible place I discovered that's outside the town of Luther. It's a little bit before you get to Arcadia on the way to Oklahoma City. And um, driving by this place, you you look to the left. It's this old, dilapidated bungalow. If you're a real estate oh, I know agent, exactly you, where that's at. Yeah, you know what this is. Yeah, mm-hmm. you look at it. You think this place is a teardown, but it was the only known black-owned filling station on Route 66. If you that serviced motorists during the segregation era. Well, if you're just driving through, you almost think it looks like a, a the set to like a frontier city type. Shoot out! It looks like like a mock up of the OK Corral. If you're not, if you're if you're just passing through, but it's uh, I had the great honor of meeting with the uh, the the descendants of the uh, the man who uh, opened and ran the the gas station, and they're in the process of remodeling it, uh, and it's their intention to reopen it as a museum and a learning center 
in uh, honor of the uh, Route 66's 100th uh, anniversary. And um, it, it really, it, when I look at the uh, the people that I met putting together this season of the show, which is all on Route 66, um, the Threat family are you know a group of people that just absolutely stick out uh, in in my memory. They they opened up the the station for me to take a look at and. Walking around this space, you could just see the memories came alive for these men. They grew up pumping gas there in the 40s. It, it was just an incredibly moving experience for me. So, Evan, how did you? How did your podcast come to be? It's a unique look at what seems to be a lot of southern locations, really off the beaten path southern locations. So, how did you come to do a podcast uh, in the tourism space? That, yeah. that is so niche. Well, yeah, it, it's been an interesting evolution. I mean, had you told me, you know, three, four years ago that I'd be spending so much time working on a project of this nature, I don't really know how I would have reacted. Uh, my background is as a performer. And um, if you hear any uh, sirens in the background, you'd never really know this in listening <laughs> to, to my work. But I actually live in New York. I've, oh, wow. I've lived here for a long time. I'm originally from Austin, Texas, but to any Sooner fans listening, don't mm-hmm. worry, I didn't. I didn't go to UT, uh, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will. I am a Longhorn in spirit, but don't worry, I didn't go to UT. So well, that's okay. Um, I'll, you get a pass. Right. But I, I am one of those people that just fell in love with podcasts and the audio medium over the last ten years. You know, just you know, cooking, doing chores around the house. I'd listen to programs like The Moth and This American Life and The Kitchen Sisters. And gradually, I just kind of started hearing these whispers that, you know, maybe maybe you should try your hand at doing something like this. And around the same time that, you know, I kept thinking about maybe taking a stab at doing something, the YouTube algorithm kept suggesting these travel vlog videos. And I would look at them, and I never really saw the way that I enjoyed traveling represented in them. I mean, it was very rarely, obviously, there are some exceptions, but more often than not, people weren't saying, oh, look at this place. It was usually, oh, look at me and how cute and fabulous I am in <laughs> yeah. this place, you know? And so I'm, I'm, my background is as a performer. I'm totally immersed in the gig economy in New York. Um, and for a long time, at least pre-pandemic, I'd uh, kind of orchestrated my life in such a way that I could escape here for a little while in January, February to get away from the brutal winter. And in January of 2020, um, I decided to go back home to, to Texas to just see about maybe capturing some oral histories and just seeing what I could do. Um, I, I really didn't have a grand vision at the time. I was really just doing it to uh, acquaint myself with the audio medium. Um, and I just started gathering stories down there. And then I took a, I, I was going to, you know, dive bars, honky tonks, dance halls. And I, I stepped back and I took a look at what I had and I realized that each episode that I had, and I, I produced them in documentary style. But I said, okay, e- each episode here is a snapshot of a different place. What is that? Well, that's a postcard. And if there's a common thread in the places that I visit, it's that you don't know how much longer a lot of them are going to be around, and they're all representative of broader uh, cultures, histories, traditions that, you know, just don't get that much in the way of attention. My first season was totally Texas-based. Um, I was very fortunate enough to get a lot of good attention out of it. Uh, and um, as a leap of faith, I decided to continue on with the, with the second season, um, which is releasing as we speak, which is entirely centered on Route 66. 
And I drove Route 66 uh, from Oklahoma to California. Uh, I spoke with over 100 people along the way, uh, drove a total of uh, 6,845 miles on the odometer. Uh, it's, it's an incredible adventure, but it's great now because I embarked on this all as a solo traveler. And uh, now with the season releasing, I feel like I get to invite people uh, along for the ride. And um, I can tell you, speaking with you guys right now, it, it was it was really important for me to to begin in Oklahoma. Uh, time, circumstance, a lot of factors uh, prevented me from doing the entire route from Chicago to L.A. But Oklahoma, Michael Wallace said that Oklahoma really is where Route 66 becomes the crossroads of America's Main Street. And I think it's where the history starts to get really interesting between uh, the Dust Bowl and, and, and so much. When I look at this season, Oklahoma is probably the, uh, the best represented state. And I just met absolutely some of the best people traveling there. And you are so fortunate in Oklahoma in that you do have the longest uninterrupted stretch of Route 66 when you look at every everywhere. You know, and um, I made some great discoveries. We also have the best people. I'm just well, we do. We, we're oh, pretty sure. nice. I mean, in the rankings, we did pretty well. Uh, we're one of the friendliest people uh, pe- group of people there is in, in, in the in the union. But I was you're speaking about the Route 66 episode. I was listening to it. And it is, I'm, I'm just going to say it. What I love about your podcast, you know, you talked about this American life and I can tell it's, he- you, you, it's heavily, your podcast is heavily inspired by them. I feel like I'm listening to, it's a, like a novel. It's a, it's a love story. And that, ep- that Mother Road episode was fantastic. But my question is, how far in advance, what type of research do you do ahead of time? Because like you said, you talked to hundreds of people. I don't, did you just, I don't think you did door knocking, but what did you do? How did you kind of prepare for the Route 66 episode? I needed to, for for the first episode, I needed to have a comprehensive history of sorts about Route 66. Um, But I, I, I will say, even with that episode, I tried to, the people that I speak with, I, I really try to use them as my guides, um, is, is what I can say. For, for that episode, I, I basically, when I was done with the trip, I kind of looked back at what I had. I, I looked at everyone that I spoke with, and it was really like, okay, well, you know, who spoke about this aspect of its history or that aspect of its history? And I kind of stitched it together a bit like a patchwork quilt in, in that regard. Um, you know, certainly there are some, uh, d- definitely there, whenever I do speak to someone, I try to do as much pre-research as I can and educate myself about them, see if there are any pre-existing interviews that they've conducted. Um, but at the same time, I try to let them be my guides, and I, I kind of figure out what the story is in post-production. I was going to actually touch on your production. Your production value is yeah. really through the roof. I'm yeah. going to say that you do a really good job. I would have guessed if I didn't have any background information on you or your show, I would have guessed that your show was produced by NPR. Mm-hmm. Not to offend you if you're not a huge not NPR fan. Um, oh, I love NPR, I do. And, 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 that, uh, and, and that means a great deal, because um, I am a, I'm completely self-taught. Uh, I am a team of one. Um, often I listen to, to documentary podcasts. They'll get to the end, and 
they'll rattle off a list of about 12 names. I'm the only one putting this together. I'm, I'm out there doing everything. So, uh, so, so that you uh, respond to that in, in that way just means the world, I can assure you. Well, Evan, you know, again, t- talking a little bit more about some of the episodes, the Miami, Oklahoma episode was actually my introduction to uh, your podcast, simply because we've, we've covered Miami and talked about Miami, but not knowing a lot about it. I was deeply moved by that episode. And that was the point where I was like, I was completely drawn in. I called Harley immediately. I said, because he's like, hey, check out this, check out this podcast, see what you think. Da 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 da. I called him afterwards. As I said, I said, I'm hooked. I'm mm. absolutely hooked. And that's, and that's, I think one of the hardest parts about the audio medium, it, mm. I, I did time in radio and a, a lot of it, we were taught, you know, you, you got to sell that, be able to sell a ham, a cheeseburger over the radio. And I'm not tr- comparing mm. your podcast to a cheeseburger, <laughs> but with that production value that you add and with the, the, the storytelling and the, and the voices, it just, it just sells it. it. It there's an emotional attachment to it. I learned more about my. I've been. I'm 45 years old. I've been here my whole life. He's been here most of, if not his whole life. There are so many things I've learned about just those little pieces that you've done about my state. I cannot say enough about it. You do. Oh. You do a fantastic job. Well, I thank you so much, and that was a very important story for me to cover because so much of what. Uh, attracted me to pursuing a season on Route 66 are the multiple layers of history that are tied up with it. And um, World War II is absolutely one of, of those layers. I thought that, uh, and you know, for those who aren't familiar with it, when you go to Miami, you go to the GAR Cemetery there, and they have a Union Jack flag flying. And there are, there's a plot that's reserved for 15 British Royal Air Force pilots. They were sent there to train during the war. And due to accident and circumstance, uh, 15 of them weren't able to make it home. But the people of Miami continue to hold vigil over these these guys. And um, it, it's, you know, I just get, when I was walking amongst those graves, uh you know, you just you just get chills. It's sacred ground. And, you know, these men obviously deserve to be remembered for their sacrifice. But uh, the people of but the story also says so much about the people of Miami. And as you said, the, the, they're just great people in Oklahoma and um, what they're doing in Miami for these guys. Just, you know, there aren't enough superlatives <laughs> to describe right. them in that story. Well, and, and again, good on you for for telling the story. That I, I I'm willing to bet most people have never heard, mm. and yeah. that's the nice thing about uh, your show, and I think our show as well is the highlighting places that don't get all the attention. There's a lot of life to be lived yeah. outside of the shiny brand new strip mall or shopping mall. I think it's important for people to to hear about it. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I will say that the concept of vanishing postcards, uh, this show is applicable really to anywhere in the world. I could very easily be collecting these stories in New York City. In New York, we're constantly dealing with the forces of change. But New York is covered so much in the media already. I mean, you turn on any TV program, it's, it's going to be taking place in New York or L.A. Mm-hmm, right. But I mean, you go to these small towns and the stories there are every bit as rich as any place else. And I also find that they're so excited to, to talk with you and share their stories. 
Um, it, it's just, and, and something that's also really important for us to remember in this country is that some of the overlooked places is where you're going to find the best art and artists. You know, people, uh, you know, kind of rag on Detroit, but Detroit gave us Motown. Clarksdale, Mississippi gave us the blues. Um, one episode that I have coming up that is, uh, is an Oklahoma story as much as anything else is I did a piece in Bakersfield, California. Oh. Um, it's not, it's not on Route 66, but all of those Oklahoma migrants drove Route 66 out to California. Bakersfield is where they ended up and they revolutionized American music in Bakersfield. And, you know, you talk to someone in California, they'd say to me, well, what the heck are you going to Bakersfield? It's like, why wouldn't I mm -hmm. go to Bakersfield? Yeah. Bakersfield <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, I like Dwight Yoakam, and he's he's a Bakersfield cowboy. Absolutely. But it is it is a love project, and when you are working on something that you love and are passionate about, I mean, it really does, it, it, it doesn't always feel like work. And at the same time, I mean, I feel... I have so much respect for the people that take the time to share with me. I mean, it's about, it, it's more about them than, than me. And I get great fuel and energy from, from the good people I've met along this journey. That's awesome. I'm super impressed with what you're doing. Now, you have started in Oklahoma. You're working your way to California. Mm -hmm. What does that process look like? How many episodes do you have mapped out for your latest trip across the country? Sure, absolutely. So this season has a total of 17 episodes. Um, so I think at this point we're maybe about a third through the, through the season at this point. We'll be going through the Texas panhandle. Um, we're, we got great stuff in, in New Mexico coming out. I mean, I visited a number of uh, Harvey houses, uh, took some ghost tours in Santa Fe, pieces on haunted hotels. Uh, I took a detour to the Grand Canyon. Uh, which, if you're ever driving Route 66 for all We've its western it. stretch, you you got to stop at the Grand Canyon. Yeah, we did that uh, uh, five or six. Yeah, we made a wrong turn and ended up on Route 66, <laughs> and then ended up standing on a, a corner in Winslow, Arizona. We did all kinds of just random stuff that you that I 40 wouldn't have. There's no we wouldn't. There's no way we would have found it. Definitely, I think there's a great diversity in the places that I visited this season. And um, as I kind of referenced before, I was very cognizant of, I mean, just choosing places that could tell the whole story of Route 66. I mean, I did a, I, a another piece in Oklahoma that it is, I went to the town of Quapaw. It was important. I took a look at the map, and I saw that the very first town that you pass through in Oklahoma is Quapaw. And I thought, I just... By virtue of the fact that this is the first town, I have to find something there. And so I went and I met with the uh, Quapaw tribe and, you know, I did a whole piece on the native of some, passed through, I think, 32 different tribal nations if you're driving Route 66. Yeah. And so, you know, had to have the Native Americans represented through that. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the, the Depression, World War II, African-American history, um, it's all there. Uh, but I actually, uh, I planned uh, pretty much the entire trip around the fact that uh, I figured out I could see uh, asleep at the wheel at uh, Kane's yeah. in, in Tulsa. <laughs> and I kid you not, I planned the whole trip around that fact. I really did. <laughs> so that, and that was the, the Greenville episode, wasn't it? Uh, Greenwood was the, Greenwood. Uh, yeah, Green, no, um, I, I did a whole episode on Kane's ballroom, which, uh, which preceded Greenwood. Okay. Uh, but yes, I also have a piece on, uh, on Greenwood as, as well. 
And um, the very first person that I spoke with uh, before uh, tackling uh, this season of Route 66 was uh, was Michael Wallace, the great um, author that uh, is a proud Oklahoma resident. And, um, you know, when telling the story of Route 66, he impressed on me the importance of, of telling uh, the whole picture and not shying away from, uh, you know, some of the uglier aspects. I think whether no matter where you're traveling, be it the United States or Europe, you don't have to dig too deep to find evidence of inhumanity. And um, I think it's important to talk about some of those issues um, as well, just just because it's the truth and it happened. Well, well you know, well, go ahead. Part of the it's part of the story. It's yeah. part of the history. It's part of the fabric of the places that you're visiting. Well, mm-hmm. and, and more to the point, you know, him and I were uh, Harley and I were discussing. We didn't learn anything about Black Wall Street about about Greenwood. Until years later, it's not something we ever learned about. And you know, Oklahoma history was it was the it was the land run, it was the mm-hmm. pioneers. We learned nothing about this, and it's and it's it's almost shameful. Yes, but it's it's, it's good though to see that it is. I mean, now I feel that it is something that we are starting to learn about, and it's shameful that you know we didn't. I, I never learned of it until after I graduated college, um, and. It is shameful that that we didn't know about it, but at the same time, it is visiting Tulsa today. They have the fantastic Greenwood Rising Museum, and you see that there is acknowledgement happening. Um, mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. It's it's unfortunate that it's taken this long, but I think it it's good that at least this dialogue is starting to happen now. Um, and there's also more to Greenwood than than 1921, right, and it was important for me to go there to see. What is the state of the community today? What do people who who are familiar and grew up around this neighborhood want for the world to know about? And what are their hopes for the future? And so I focused on the history as much as today and, you know, where things are maybe moving towards in that episode. Which, again, I think is a brilliant way to look at it. You have to take the good with the bad and tell the story. And that gives us a jumping off point uh, for, right. for where the stories go from here. I, mm-hmm. I think you do a great job of that. So as far as where you started and where you're going, how are you working in, for future episodes, how are you working in the different towns? Is it going to be kind of a a mashup where you're talking about stories that happen in one state along with other stories? Or how how do you see that going? Well, it's different. I mean, some episodes... Um you know, some episodes are specifically focused on certain places, but there are other episodes that, uh, you know, mix and match a little bit. Uh, for instance, I have a piece on diners, you know, features the, the Rock Cafe in Stroud. It features the Midpoint Cafe in Adrian, Texas, and uh, it features a, another one in uh, Seligman, Arizona. So uh, you do get a diversity of locations in that one. They're thematically linked, but you get different locations. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the, the Native American piece, I, you know, spoke with tribes in Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona. Um, so it, it, it really is a mix, but um, the entire season is is in the can pretty much at, at this point. And I, I wanted to make certain that everything was done uh, before I began releasing so that I could then shift focus on marketing and growth and other le- uh, life matters and what's next. Well, I am a little saddened that we didn't know about you before you came through because I think we could have definitely shown you around a little bit and I would have been yeah. been proud to do that. But mm-hmm. I do have a question Please. that 
maybe a little bit on the more whimsical side, but mm-hmm. what what are some of your Oklahoma bests? Like things that you would recommend to anybody who's traveling through? Yeah, like a best burger mm-hmm. or Sure. Well, I mean, I, I got to say again, I mean, Kane's uh, Kane's ballroom, seeing asleep at the wheel there, just walking into that space, seeing all of those portraits around. I mean, for me, having grown up on Western Swing, man, that oh, yeah. was a religious experience. It, it, it yeah. absolutely was. It's the home of Bob uh, Wills. I mean, come on. Oh, hell yes. So uh, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, uh, Kane's is Kane's is at the top of, of my list. Favorite diner, it has to be the the Rock Cafe in Stroud, which mm. I previously mentioned. I sat down, talked with Don Welch, the owner there, who's just a, an incredible, inspirational woman and figure. But the food is also really good. I I, I gotta add. Um, but I, like you said earlier, when when I think about Oklahoma, I think about the people that I met more than anything else. You know, one uh, gentleman that sticks out in my mind is uh, John Woolley. Uh, who showed me around Ed Galloway's Totem Pole Park. Uh, he, he wrote for the uh, Tulsa World, I think, for, for many years. We absolutely hit it off. And, uh, I mean, there are so many people like him that I, I, I yearn to go back to Oklahoma for just so that we can hang out more over beer. Well, the reason why I asked about the burgers, you know, I know you're from Austin, but you moved to New York. There's a lot of vegans in New York. Uh, no, I just wanted, no, to, be, no, I wanted to see what your palate was like. No, no, no. Believe me, no. I, I I grew up on red meat, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, the only the only red meat I eat is uh, Longhorns every second Saturday in October. So, <laughs> well, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep my mouth uh, quiet. Yeah, city, you're city boy now. No. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll see. No, I, I I'll always you know I like to think of myself as bicultural. I get right. to borrow the best of both worlds. I do. So you're in New York City right now. You said you kind of take, you know, the first of the year in February off. Is that when is that when you're going to launch the next the next leg, or what can we expect in the in the near future? Well, it's uh, I, I actually will say this: the it's um, I'm I have something very exciting in the work that I'm actually getting paid for, uh, which is kind of what the the whole idea behind this was: is that I hope to use this series as something of a resume. Uh, and it, it seems to be working out that way. And um, I've been approached uh, to produce a, a mini-series, which is going to be taking me back to Texas. Uh, and I don't know how much I can uh, say about it at this point, but I'll just say it's going to be all about food. Just say you're and, hiring. Just tell me you're hiring. Uh, right. And then I'll submit my <laughs> podcast resume, and then we'll maybe we can sit down and break bread somewhere between Oklahoma and the Red River. <laughs> yes, but, no, but the next so it's good, the next thing that I have going on is going to be a collaboration between Vanishing Postcards uh, and another show, and it's going to be finding me back in Texas, doing a lot of eating, talking to a lot of great cooks, and uh, just finding a, a bunch of incredible history that's tied up with with food. And I'm really um, I'm actually going to be getting started work on that just next week. Wow. Man, you're a performer. You're you were made for this. You were built for uh, this. <laughs> I'm, believe me, I'm figuring it all out as we go. So you said, perf- I'm going to go back. Th- let me touch on that performer thing much. We, we've kind of skimmed the surface. What are you, are we talking Broadway here? I, I'm an actor. I've done a lot of uh, regional work uh, and uh, some work in the city that very few people have seen. I can assure you I've yet to <laughs> get to pop the, the Broadway cherry, but I've also done a lot of work in the, the concert and cabaret uh, realm, Uh-oh. and uh, I've been privileged and fortunate enough. Um, I've uh, performed as a soloist on the bill of a concert at Carnegie Hall. 
Uh, I also performed a solo concert at Lincoln Center. Uh, you know, I've, I performed the Chicago Humanities Festival. I've been I've been blessed to uh, to perform on a lot of great stages with some really cool, fancy people along this wild journey of my life. So how I still have to podcasting. What what got mm-hmm. you? In, who inspired you besides us? Uh, <laughs> who inspired you to get into to podcasting? More specifically, the kind of the travel and tourism aspects of it. I mean, the, the podcasts that I like, um, I feel take take you somewhere. And I just, I, I, I am someone that has just always had great appreciation for storytelling and the art of raconteurship. And um, as I said earlier, um, it was honestly just a gradual evolution through listening to shows. Like, um, I, I mean, I'll tell you a bit more is one show that I love. Um, is called Cocaine and Rhinestones, and it's all about the history of country music. And um, I initially, basically, when I first got to the city, kind of, this is, this is where performance and podcasting overlap. Um, I got to, to the city and I realized that no doors were going to open for me and I needed to do something on my own. And I thought initially about writing a one-man show, and I realized very quickly that in order to write something that was of a good quality that I myself would actually want to sit through, much less other people, um, it was going to take uh, more time and work than I had the patience for. And I said, well, you know what, in Cabaret, the songs are there, the history is there, I can put together an evening of song and stories. And so I put together a show that was all on the songs of World War II. And so that's, and I ended up later doing shows on the songs of Prohibition. And um, I later did a whole program on the songs of Johnny Mercer's South. You know, Johnny Mercer wrote uh, Skylark, Moon River, just one of the great uh, lyricists in the the pantheon of American popular music. And um, in, in listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, I initially, between that and my interest in travel and everything, the show that I initially wanted to put together was actually going to be a musical travelogue of Mexico. Um, I, I make it to Mexico about twice a year. Uh, it's kind of a second home for me. And I thought that I would use music as a portal to exploring the cultural, regional history of, of Mexico. And I went so far as to go down there and I tried to put something together. And it's one thing to be writing in a vacuum where you think, my God, this is going to be amazing. Then you sit down and you listen to what you've done and you think, my goodness, I have missed the mark oh, horribly. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. what it was is I was, you know, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm proficient in Spanish. I'm not fluent. So it's challenging to establish that level of rapport where subjects really cut loose and start giving you the good stuff. Uh, but then you have actors come in and dub over them uh, in English. You lose all that great color shade and nuance of the human voice. But more than that, for instance, um, I was, I went to the city of Merida in the Yucatan, and I was listening to myself. I'm like, I'm talking about Merida. I'm talking about it, but I'm not feeling it. And I realized that I had to educate myself to, you know, figure out how I could put something together that was really going to take listeners on a journey and make them feel that they were right there with me. And so that's kind of the the project that gave birth to Vanishing Postcards. And as I said earlier, my intention was really uh, just to educate myself about how to do it better. And it quickly became its own beast, and I realized, okay, well, this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing right here. So I'm noticing a theme throughout a lot of your stories. There seems to be a lot of music and a lot mm-hmm. of history. Mm-hmm. Is is that part of your, your, back, your educational background, the history? 
history part or um it's just i it's just a sincere love and and interest i mean i didn't study much in the way of history um in college uh which might be why i i like it so, so much <laughs> um, but no it's just i i've always had an interest in an appreciation in in history and and i think it's important to to honor uh and remember those who, who came before us because it informs our present and to provide some lessons about our, our future. But uh, more than anything else, I think that, um, you know, that it, it's, it's not something that's ever directly addressed, but it's my hope that vanishing postcards can be part of a broader conversation because we have a lot in place in our cities, uh, in our society to preserve things like architecture or green space, mm-hmm. but we don't have a lot to protect culture. There isn't a lot that actually, you know, as I said, we can protect the architecture, but there isn't a lot to protect what actually goes on inside these buildings. Right. And I think that it, it's a really important conversation that we need to start having. Um, someone pointed out to me that each episode, each place that I feature is a place where people go to belong. And it's kind of, it's harder to belong in a Starbucks yeah. than it is, you know, a, a diner. And I think that these are conversations that we need to have. I mean, New York City, um, you know, didn't become Detroit after the 1970s because, you know, it's culture. New Orleans wasn't abandoned after Hurricane Katrina because of its culture. Uh, people keep moving to my hometown of Austin because they like the culture. Mm-hmm. And I think there's great uh, value and importance in honoring and, and finding ways to celebrate and preserve this culture before it's lost. So, Evan, we're kind of reaching the end here, but... What would be your biggest piece of advice in, in all of your journeys through life and through this podcast? What would be your biggest piece of advice for somebody that's just starting out? So starting out in podcasting. 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 The, anyone anyone can, can start a podcast. The, the entry level for starting a podcast is the same entry level as writing a novel. Anyone can do it. So for heaven's sake, you know, take the time to figure out what it is unique that you have to say and express and focus on that. Specificity is your friend. If uh, you start a podcast where you say, oh, well, you know, it's me and my friends and we're going to talk about anything and everything. That tells me absolutely <laughs> right. nothing. I mean, you, you, you've done nothing right there. Right. And so, you know, just, just you need to, to figure out, you know, just, just really sit with yourself, find what your voice is. We are all unique individuals. I mean, there, there are some things that, you know, you you guys have voices that I don't have. Yeah. But we all have something to say. We all have something to bring to the table. Just find out what is special and unique about you and lean into that. That's what I'd say. Well, Evan. And, it, you, also, and you also have to love it, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's about the process. It's, you know, you can't you can't be focused on the results. You have to love the process. Have you there always loved it, though, Evan? Is there was there a uh, point where you're like I, you know, I'm going back to Broadway? <laughs> oh, oh gosh! <laughs> I believe I mean, what I can say is that with each episode it is a is as much research as you try to do. Uh, there are so many variables at stake. It's it's always a jump into the unknown. There's always tremendous self doubt. Every time before I take on a new piece, it's always kind of like, oh, my goodness, is, is, is this going to work? Am I really going to pull this off? And so there, there are plenty of moments of anxiety, but 
hey, I'm I'm still here chugging along, so you know, don't want to toot my own horn, but I think I might be doing something okay. You're doing something okay, you know. And there's also those moments in podcasting that hit every now and again, kind of like what you're about to get into, and we've experienced it at some level. Those pinch me moments. You're like, I can't believe some. You know what I mean? I can't believe somebody wants me to do this thing for a living, or they. I can't. I can't believe I'm still doing this after 100 episodes. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Evan, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I cannot wait personally for uh, the next chapters of uh, Vanishing Postcards. Well, I, I thank you guys again so much. I'm I'm most honored, and and as I've said, I so respect what you've been doing for, for so long. Oklahoma is really lucky to have voices like yours. Jiminy Christmas. Evan, can I, I is it too soon to, to ask you to, to be my best friend? <laughs> is it, <laughs> I, can, I can always use more, believe me. I can uh, always use more, sure. And uh, hopefully uh, somewhere down the road uh, we can touch, touch base again. Yeah, I'm all I mean, for it. If you if you end up do, doing season three and you're touching Oklahoma at all, feel free to reach out, man. We we would uh, love to meet up, and buy you a beer, and uh, I would share love, a story I would or something. Lo- I would love nothing more. And as I said, Oklahoma is a place I really do hope to return to. Good, Sounds good. like a plan, man. Well, we're going to hold you to it. But again, this is this has been a great honor and a joy. And need anything? I'm here for you. And I do hope that uh, our paths can connect in, in person at some juncture. I really do. Well, I think we can agree that sometimes history can't... We've talked to people that do history, I'm using air quotes, and it can be kind of a kind of a drag. I think it's all in the presentation, right. and I, I think that Evan does a really good oh, job. Oh, yeah, fantastic I job. I, I'm super impressed with him, but it's his enthusiasm, and it's something that we struggle with on our oh, yeah. show. Oh, yeah. Is bringing a level of... I mean, it's not always, but, you know, right. there are times where we struggle with trying to trying to be excited about to make people excited. Or if you're not excited about a spot in the road, the people listening to you won't be either. Well, I don't even I don't even know if it's that we have a problem being excited yeah. so much as we have a problem expressing the right. level of excitement that we have. Right. Yes. Yes. Because yes. a lot of people look at us like we're weird. Yeah. Like we're weird or. You know, they might listen to Evan's show and listen to ours and go, yeah, these guys are amateurs. But we've been at it for a while. We have. <laughs> we've been we at have. it for a while. But, yeah, I really enjoyed that interview. Uh, you know, again, it, it's next to our show. I think it's my favorite tourism show. And it's not all Oklahoma. I mean, as you, as No, you, it's definitely not all Oklahoma. Yeah. And, again, there are, there are going to be plenty of episodes this season that yeah. touch on Oklahoma. His first season was primarily about Texas. Right. Uh, so if if you like Evan, you may just want to be a fan of Evans and follow what he does, whether it's it's within the the boundaries of the state or not. Well, and if you if you're listening, he, he's got some projects on the way, so you may hear be you're going to be hearing more from Evan Stern. Yeah, sure. I definitely definitely think that he, he's one to watch. Most definitely, and if you want to hear a little bit from Evan Stern, don't forget at the end of this episode, stay to the bitter end. We're going to give you some Kane's Ballroom from Evan from Evan. With love. Well, if you subscribe to Evan's show, which I I'm, I'm most certainly would expect that you would, tell him you heard about him on us. Because he's going to tell all his people he heard about us on... Wait, I, that sounds bad. It just sounds bad. I, us on him, him on us. You know what I mean. <laughs> well, this has been the only OK Show. I'm Harley. And I'm Brett. And we're out of here. Peace.
I grew up on music that we call Western Swing. Waylon Jennings famously sang those words, but I can actually say the same. My dad's always been a huge fan of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and hits like Roly Poly and the San Antonio Rose were essential for any of our road trip mixtapes. Coming of age in Austin, I saw the fiddler Johnny Gimble fill in on gigs at the Carousel Lounge and remain a dedicated groupie of the Hot Club of Cowtown. So when I set out on this Route 66 journey, for me, a stop at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, which might be Western Swing's greatest cathedral, was absolutely non-negotiable. And when I found out that Asleep at the Wheel would be playing there as part of their 50th anniversary tour, you better believe I planned my travels accordingly. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Don't need no more statues. Don't need no more affirmations. Uh, all I need is an audience and a band to play with me and enjoy it. And, uh... Ray Benson, the approachable founder and frontman of the band Asleep at the Wheel, has produced over 30 albums, won eight Grammys, performed for presidents and poppers alike, and at age 70, doesn't seem phased by much. He started this group which fans affectionately call The Wheel in 1970, and over half a hundred years later is still on the road. Puffing on a joint from his bus on the day of a play and drive, he tells me so long as his fingers and voice remain in working condition, retirement isn't a word in his vocabulary. At this point, he's in this game for the fun of it. Still, tonight feels special. I'll tell you what. First time I stepped on this stage was 50 years ago next month. Yeah. 1971, the winter of 1971, we were backing up the same guy, Stoney Edwards, and I recall the way it was, uh, how classic it was, the wood floor, and the history is what's really embedded in the walls, you know. The pictures that line it are just, just a classic. It was a magic, magic moment for us. We stood on the stage and, and it was and played a song and it was kind of like uh, literally to us it felt like okay we made it to Carnegie Hall and and this is it and uh, it was wonderful. The stage he's speaking of and Grayson again is of course Kane's Ballroom, located on Tulsa's Main Street in a space whose cavernous interior could double as an airplane hangar. Architecturally speaking, it has little in common with Andrew Carnegie's Gilded Age venue. But Mr. Benson is by no means the only one who regards this place with deep reverence. To me, the Canes is the most revered building in the state of Oklahoma. In terms of that sentimental journey type museum aura, the Canes is it. It's not the, to me, it's not the Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City. It's not the Will Rogers Museum. And I love Will Rogers, by the way. Canes Ballroom is the center. And here's why. My theory is... We're, the whole world, we're all connected to each other by music. And because of that, Keynes, Keynes is the figurehead. Keynes, Keynes is the church, so to speak. And I believe in that. 
But if Keynes is a church, hearing stories from a longtime regular who just tells me his name is J.W., I'd wager this is one of the looser congregations I've encountered. They used to be BYOL, and they would be drinking whiskey. They'd all be drunk and it, it, passing joints up and down the tables. You know, it was a wild time, the 70s. And, and do you have a first memory of Canes? Yeah. Six-point tall boy curs, getting drunk, sitting on the curb outside with my head down in the curb. And real drunk my first time, but it was so much fun. They had tomboy curds and ice like watermelons in ice can you know ice water. Interestingly enough, though, I learned from Larry Schaefer, Kane's white ponytailed cigar chomping former owner, that it was initially intended as a playground for oil rich Tulsa's high society. Kane, Madison Kane did not build the Canes. Okay, Tate Brady, a local businessman built the building in 1924, the building which would become Kane's Ballroom. Legend is he built it to be a car dealership. The car dealership deal fell through. He opens the building in 1924 as a dance hall called the Louvre, go figure. And and it's operated as the Louvre up until Madison Kane came in and bought it in about 1930. Madison Kane grew up in Long Beach, came out to Oklahoma to set up his, to, to have his dancing uh, company, Kane's Academy of Dance. He makes a deal with Tate Brady to get the Louvre. Comes in 1930, the name changes to Kane's Academy of Dance. So that's how the ballroom was built. Opens as the Louvre, runs its course for several years. Bass and Kane comes in and quickly puts it on the map. And the proper dress, you had to have proper dress. Madison Kane would hire young debonair guys in their tuxes as dance instructors. There was a lot of money here and nowhere to go spend it. So there was the more upscale debutantes would take dancing lessons. What else are you going to do? A lot of the streets were just dirt streets. But while Madison Kane gave the place its name, it was Bob Wills who, with the help of his Texas Playboys, made it famous well beyond Oklahoma and earned the title King of Western Swing. Western Swing is an amalgam of a lot of different kinds of music. It's often, it's often lumped in with country music, but it's not really country music. It's, it's a dance music, and it's, it's, a, it's jazz, jazz and dance-based. It's, it, has, it contains elements of Texas fiddle music, Texas fiddle music, pop music, south of the border music, uh, blues, rhythm and blues, and big band. With, with Western Swing, it's still, it's mostly a string instrument, it's still guitar fiddle. And the Texas people are always sort of PO'd because Bob Wills had to come here to popularize Western Swing, which they tend to call Texas Swing, which is a misnomer. If you heard the last episode, you'll recognize that voice as John Woolley, who co-authored the book 20th Century Honky Tonk about Kane's Ballroom. Why Wills and the boys ended up here instead of Fort Worth, Waco, or maybe San Antonio is a long and wild story. Basically, they were chased out of Texas and then even Oklahoma City by teetotaling bandleader and eventual governor and senator Papio Daniel whose influence ruled the airwaves with an iron fist. Bob Wills, his business manager, O.W. Mayo, and their announcer and trumpeter, Everett Stover, driving from Oklahoma City to Tulsa, and 
Mr. Mayo always told me he was the one that said, you know, there's a big station there. This is just a 5,000 watt station we're going to. There's a 25,000 watt station there called KVOO. Why don't we go try that first? Some way or another, they managed to talk their way into going on KVOO at midnight. That was the earliest they could get the rest of the band down. And so that started Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in Tulsa. After that first program, they received a postcard from a listener who heard them in faraway Berkeley, California. Soon after, they moved their show to a prime noontime spot and in 1935 began broadcasting from Canes, whose large space gave them more room to accommodate their fast-rising popularity. It just blew across about half of America because there was no station in the way. And so people were picking it up all over the country and started hearing this new music and, and getting the ideas in their head of the Canes Ballroom being like the Aragon or something, you know, or some place that like Tommy Dorsey would play. They had all these grandiose ideas of what the Canes was like. And and if you look at where country, I'm sorry, where Western swing music really caught on, which is essentially the Southwest and West, it was the broadcast pattern of KVO. Indeed, the crowds came like never before. And being a working man's entertainer, after seeing Mrs. Kane eject a few tireless men from the dance floor, Will saw to it the dress code was disregarded, forever loosening up the place's spirit. The, the first thing is that they changed it from a dance, a dance lesson, a place where you had dance lessons, a dancing academy, to a, a honky-tonk. And that was, that was the doing of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. It was a completely different situation. Keynes is still known as the home of Bob Wills, and an embroidered, tasseled banner bearing this title hangs over the proscenium stage today. But though significant, Bob Wills' residency only represents about a seven-year chapter of Kane's history. And looking up from the maple dance floor, you'll notice the space is watched over by a continuous series of oversized portraits of legends who've performed here. Faces like Ernest Tubb, Patti Page, Glenn Miller, Fats Domino... And Hank Williams, whose presence infamously hangs over a red couch that's still kept in management's office. In October of 1952, you know, Hank was in a wobble by then. Drug-wise, painkillers, I understand, and terrible drinker. O.W. Mayo, Bob Will's manager, was co-owner. He hired Hank Williams to come in. Of course he would want to and play two shows in October of, of that year. Hank, as I'm, t- and I, I got this information I got from O.W. Mayo, who hired him that day. I, I, I was good friends with him before he passed away years ago. He hired him. He knew that he, that Hank had a problem with alcohol. He hired Blackie Crawford as the band for him that night. He became so intoxicated that he had to be held up through the first show, okay? And the crowd forgave him for it. It was packed. By the, when the show's over, it's good night. That crowd leaves. They bring in the net, the late show crowd. Hank was too, he, Hank was too, out of it to even perform. There was he was not going to perform. But Blackie Crawford announced that they're going to play the show anyway if people would stay, and they're welcome to get refunds on the way out since Hank couldn't be there. But that Hank was in the office there, asleep on the couch. I don't know if you recall seeing that old Naugahyde couch. That's the couch. Hank's second show, 
Hank spent on that couch passed out. Well, as I'm told O.W. Mayo, the crowd was kind of okay with that because he was still there. They were sympathetic to that, and the crowd stayed. But somehow someone had opened the door from the ballroom into that office, and you could see Hank's line over there. The crowd formed, and they passed by, and, and take, with respect, they, they got to see their star passed out on the couch. And no, one, and no one asked for a refund. Keynes is rich with stories like these that are in no way limited to the antics of country stars. And much of its survival can be attributed to its willingness to adapt with the times, which is a practice Larry Schaefer deserves credit for helping foster. I was born in 1948. I grew up west of Tulsa, out in a rural area. But there was, there was a lot of storytelling about the Bob Wills days and the old Keynes ballroom and how, how much great fun it was and you could buy bootleg whiskey out the back door and you could dance and grab ass and occasionally there'd be a fist fight breakout. So I, I grew up with that, hearing those stories at a distance. So I, it was in my mind, what did it mean much to me at that point now? He wouldn't actually visit Keynes until some years later when he was summoned there to fill in on the steel guitar for a gig with Gene Mooney and the Western Airs. So I loaded up and I go find Keynes First time I'd ever even really paid attention to it. I go inside the ballroom. This would have been in about June of 1971. I walk in the ballroom, front doors there, holding that guitar case. And as soon as I walked into the ballroom, I, I, I was affected. It's just I got some kind of a cosmic shock, okay? Like I knew, I said, I thought to myself, wow, something big has happened here. When you look at those portraits, and, you, and the smell, the smell I smelled that day is, is exactly the smell you smelled when you were there, okay? <laughs> it's in the, it's in the wall. The DNA is in the walls. But it affected me as a musician to realize, wow, this place is a hidden, hidden treasure. So that was the first time I was in Keynes after growing up in the 50s and 60s hearing about it. Five years later... Having found a career as a promoter and made some change booking Peter Frampton and Carlos Santana at the Tulsa Fairground Speedway, he went ahead and made a down payment. About late 1975 or early 76, I saw an announcement that Kane's Ballroom was going to be up for sale. You know, I gave I gave 60 grand for Kane's and just worried myself to death that I'd paid too much. He'd maintain ownership for nearly a quarter century, during which time he'd form relations with everyone from Eric Clapton to George Jones, Van Halen, and in 1978 booked a ragtag group of kids from London. I paid the, I paid the Sex Pistols $1,000, okay? My tickets were $2.50. The, the tour was so unorganized by Malcolm McLaren, who managed them, brought them over from London, decided to pick Southern tour and not play Chicago and Detroit and New York City, but he strung them down to the south because he wanted bad things to happen and get more publicity because you know how that works. Bad publicity is the best you can get. I, had, I didn't sell out. I had eight or 900 people there on a cold, snowy night. I had protesters outside of the front door against the evilness. I had so many undercover cops trying to bust these guys for having live sex on stage, which was not even close. They were just a bunch of teenage kids really trying to pretend they're badasses. Yeah, I, they hung in my office all day, in and out, over my feet. I had 
kept feeding them cases of warm Heineken beer because they wanted to drink their beer. But when they when they hit uh, when they went into God Save the Queen, I love these guys. But what it did, what it did, how it affected the musicians and listeners around Tulsa, there was no punk scene until that moment. <coughs> so these young rock, a lot of young rockers became punk rockers the next day after they saw the Sex Pistols. Not really stirred up the punk scene around here. As it did everywhere, probably. As it turned out, the tour only lasted two weeks and would prove to be one of the final gigs before the band's breakup. Frontman Sid Vicious would also die of an overdose about a year later. But he left an imprint that remains at Kane's today in the form of a hole he punched in the wall backstage that current owner Chad Rogers keeps framed in his office mere feet from Hank Williams' memorial couch. wall is where Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols put his fist in 1978. When we bought the Kane's, we were told that story, and it used to be backstage... Um, backstage behind the stage and we had it cut out and framed and brought up here because it's such a historic kind of piece of memorabilia a lot of the bands that come through they've been told or they hear, have heard about this so they like to come in the office and see it when i was made aware of it i didn't react well I, if i'd have been back here i'd have i would have taken him to the ground and kicked his ass for doing it but uh, it wasn't a, the walls that back behind the dressing dressing room weren't that precious and the wall, the hole that he knocked was actually in to the girls' restroom. <laughs> there was a common wall, so if you knocked a hole in the damp, the the, the sheetrock, all of a sudden you get, you're looking into the girls' bathroom. I don't know if he did it out of anger or what. I wasn't back there with him, but I'd have stopped him if I'd have been there. But dealing with explosive rockers is only one of many challenges you'll face in running a music venue. And Larry acknowledges it wasn't all fun and games. I figured I, I'd, I was 27 when I got there. A lot of it because I was finding myself overwhelmed by it. It took so much hands-on, and I was prone to take the easy way out and a bag of cocaine and too much alcohol, and that became the lifestyle down there. It was catching up to me, and I was at a point where I was feeling like I couldn't escape from canes. And I said, well, you know, here I am. I've been here 25 years, 24 years. I don't, I don't want to be here 24 years from now, an old decrepit man who has a heart attack sitting behind this desk. So it was time for me to move on. I always say I was done with Keynes. It was done with me. And um, I was bankrupt. There was no money left. And I just saw it as time to, to leave. And last time I was in there was probably first day of the year 2000. Uh, I came in and I gathered a few of my possessions uh, I'd already transferred ownership out with no financial end of it coming my way, by the way. I simply, I simply threw the keys in the street and walked away, and I did exactly that. When I left here that Saturday afternoon, I grabbed this and that, put it in my car, locked the door, and I threw my keys up in the air down Main Street and drove off. Larry struggled to reinvest in the property during his tenure and had a hard time maintaining upkeep, which suffered further following some poor management after his departure. Then... In 2002, a savior came in the form of neurosurgeon Jim Rogers, who bought the property with his son Chad, who oversees its operations today. Um, I never would have ever thought I'd be doing what I'm doing, I guess, is to get to where, like what you asked. Um, but when we were both sitting at home, my mom and dad were at their house, and I was at my house on a Sunday evening, 
in 2002, and it came on the 10 o'clock news that the Canes Ballrooms was for sale. We both happened to see it, and he texted me, and he came down. We came down to look at it that Tuesday, and he bought it that Thursday. And um, the funny thing is, he grew up in Tulsa. He was born here, but he had never been in Kane's Ballroom till that Tuesday before he bought it on that Thursday. But when he walked in, just like my mom and I and brother could feel, we could see through all the dust and the it, the place was very run down. Um, it was, had not been taken care of. It hadn't really been much in business. I mean, they've been doing things here and there, but it wasn't anything like what it is now. And you know upkept like like it deserved to be and um you know we could see through all that and i think you could see i remember my dad saying this is a jewel it's a it's 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 a treasure like it'd be horrible if it got into the wrong hands like we should we should we should do this talk to any regulars about the old days and at some point they'll inevitably get around to mentioning the bathrooms which technical director brad harris can't help but bring up at this point in our conversation I mean, no wait, no air conditioning, you know, or the bathrooms were horrible. It was two troughs and a stool for the men's and three stools and a sink for the women's. And it was, was that way for like 83 years, man, you know. So what Chad said, the dust was thick, you know, the grime was thick. You know, we had to go to like two or three different banks just to get enough money, acquire and, and, and talk these people to see the vision that we had that we could turn this around and that we could be doing 90 to 100 shows a year plus private parties and put Canes back on the map as the true, you know, Carnegie Hall, quote-unquote, of Western Swing, like people call it, and, you know, the home of Bob Wills, time, Tulsa's timeless honky-tonk. Those are all slogans that Canes has always had. And I feel like that more than ever right now, we, we make that proud. I mean, we, we represent that, so... Watching a full house of couples glide across the polished dance floor, which is bathed in soft blue and red lights, I agree that Chad has much to be proud of. And though he tells me he grew up listening to more Bon Jovi and Journey than Western Swing, this place's history is clearly not lost on him. A couple couple summers ago, I had a, a, an older man and woman that were dr- driving Route 66 from California, and they stopped in and they knocked on the front door and I, I, I came to the box office and they said, do you mind if we come inside and look around? We, 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 we've been here before. We just want to look around again. So I let them inside and I, uh, I turned the mirror ball on and I ended up walking out there and they were under the mirror ball dancing. And as they were leaving, I said, well, when were you here in the past? And they said, we met here back in the 40s, 50s. Chad tells me that before renovating the property, he and his father took a trip to my hometown to tour La Zona Rosa, the backyard, and Austin Music Hall for ideas. It's bittersweet to hear him say this, knowing that none of those places remain. But while nothing in life is permanent, and know full well how challenging the last few years have been for live performance, I don't think I see Kane suffering that fate anytime soon. See... I don't think Madison Kane, Larry, or the Rogers family chose this place. I think it chose them. And it's because of their stewardship it remains, and trust it will call others in the future. I am redeemed in some ways to see what Kane's 
has become to the, to the world. It's not just to Tulsa. Keynes is one of those great old places that are still standing, and so many of them are not anymore. And it looks like Keynes is going to keep standing now. Here's one, here's one thing I realized about Keynes. All I ever was was a caretaker. All we all, all we are is caretakers for our things. Keynes is going to, Keynes was there after I, the, after I left, Keynes still was there, and it was still Keynes. It's doing fine. And the Rogers family that have done so well by it, they put the money into it, they cleaned it up. It's there to stay. And the people that own it now, and I'm very close to them, the Rogers family, are just caretakers. And I've told that to Jim Rogers. Jim, you're not going to own this place forever. To stop and remind yourself, because somebody after you is going to own it, and hopefully somebody after them will go on for perpetuity. So. So many to thank for making this episode happen, and I'm going to start with the legendary Ray Benson for generously finding time to speak with me mere minutes before taking the stage. Few have done more to honor Bob Wills' legacy more than this man and Asleep at the Wheel, who are still killing it on the road. Their site is in the show notes, and go see them if you can. It's an experience you will not forget. And for heaven's sake, if you're in Tulsa, do yourself a favor and see what's going on at Kane's. Thanks so much to Chad and Brad for all that they do there, as well as the incredible Larry Schaefer for sharing so much with me. John Woolley was the one who facilitated our meeting, and again recommend his tome, 20th Century Honky Tonk, which is the definitive book of record on this special place. Most of all, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krause and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. A hypocritic hippo hit me on the highway. 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 A hypocritic hippo on the highway. A hypocritic Okay, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Hypocritic hippos. Hip- hypnotize hypnosis hiccups. Hypocritic hippo hit me on the highway. What a hiccupy Hitchcock. Out front talking to the neighbor the other day. The one across the street? Uh, no. Okay, gotcha. And we were talking food or whatever. Gotcha. She does uh, 
keto. Oh, she does? Yeah. And so we were just talking about it, you know, talking about the shit that's in the food or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, oh, I've, I made this thing the other day. She basically made like sausage Alfredo, but instead oh, of using good. noodles, she used cabbage. Oh, I bet that's real good. I've seen that. So I was like, that's a cool idea. So mm-hmm. I went into my kitchen and made it because I had a head of cabbage. Make it. My cabbage was purple cabbage. Oh, so, so everything was purple. The sauce looked like... <laughs> Gang. Uh, Barney. Barney. Looked like you ground up Barney. Yeah, dude. And it was good, but literally I couldn't eat it and look at it. Well, that's the, th- that's the thing. It has, like, visually, first of all, you got to get over the fact that it's not noodles, it's cabbage, but you add the color and the natural dye. Mm-hmm. I've seen that. I've seen somebody do a recipe for that. It looks really good. You just make it essentially like a regular Alfredo, but you fry the, you fry the cabbage. So the way I did it, and I just winged it. Like okay. she said, what she did with it. Mm-hmm. So I took some onions and some cabbage, and I put them in a big skillet. Yeah. And started cooking them down. I cooked them until the onions started getting Trans- clear. Translucent. Yeah. And then I just started adding cheese and cream and and uh, you don't do recipes no garlic and basically I mean it tasted like Alfredo but it looked like Barney's. How did Gordon Ramber like it? Uh, same same issue. <laughs> it's like it doesn't look right. I feel like I'm eating yeah. a cartoon. Like if you ate it with a blindfold, you'd be like, "Damn, this is good." Yeah. Wow. Well, we're glad to provide, and this is kind of why we we love. This is the best kind of review, in in my opinion. <laughs> the the kind the, I I can't say enough. Evan, I, we helped somebody. Wow. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm in awe. Well, yes, yeah, that's what it's all about. It, ideally, this should be about serving. Three, two, one, and welcome to the show. Today, we're talking about season two of the Vanishing Postcard. Okay. Three, two, one. And welcome to the show. Today we're talking about the Vanishing Postcards season two. Okay, go. One, two, three. How about this? How does that seem wordy? That like literally cut out 90% of the volume of words that you're going to use. Three, two, one. And welcome to the show. Today we're talking about a unique podcast that sheds some... Wait, nope. Stop, stop, stop. Gives different perspectives. Da, 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 da. Ready? Three, two, one. And welcome to the show. Today we're talking about a unique podcast that gives a different perspective to some of the Oklahoma locations that you've grown to love. No, I don't like it. I, I really liked it, but uh, okay, I don't Three. like how you went because I. Well, I'm doing. Well, I'm doing. A, book it. It's ad libbing. It's hard sometimes. Look it. Okay, ready. Three, two, three, two, one. And welcome to the show. Today we're talking about a unique podcast. It shines. Uh, why am I saying shines? Why am I saying that? U- unique podcast that. How about a new podcast that shines a unique light on? Okay, fine. Three, two, one. And welcome to the show. Today we're talking about a unique, a new podcast. Three, two, two one. one. 